Welcome. My name is Robert. I'm the lead pastor. I want to welcome you all. Uh, we've been going through the book of Deuteronomy. We haven't covered every chapter and every verse. There's 31 chapters. It takes quite some time to do that. Uh, but we have been going through the book in sections. And uh, what we've been saying is that Deuteronomy is kind of like a pep talk. Right? Moses is giving this big, big sermon, this final sermon that sort of summarizes everything he's ever said to them. And he's preparing them to move from being wanderers in the wilderness to being in the promised land. And so he's telling them, here's what I want you to do. This is the way that God wants you to live once you get into the promised land. And so the sermon includes some of the backstory uh, of what the people of God have experienced up to that point. It includes uh, the covenant making that God did at Mount Sinai out in the wilderness. It includes uh, the reason that Israel is uh, the, the people of God, and God lets them know it's because I chose you. It's not because you're special, but it's because I love you and I've set my love on you. Uh, he spent some time talking about their worship and how central that's going to be for them as a people and explains what that's going to entail. Uh, there's then a long section that's just the law. It's, it's rules and regulations for what's going to happen with the way life's going to be lived out day in, day out. Once they get into the promised land, and when we get to, to chapter 27, it's like the big finish. It's the big finish. We're going to spend three, three weeks in this uh, big finish. And what we see in this chapter 27 is Moses' instructions to them uh, when they get, like when they first get over the Jordan River into the promised land. This is what they're supposed to do. They're supposed to build a monument. They're supposed to sacrifice at an altar. And they're supposed to do a cheer. Got it? So they're going across the Jordan, going to build a monument, going to sacrifice at an altar, and they're going to do a cheer. Now, why would they do that? And I, and I think in part, it's because you're trying to get four million-ish people on the same page. And the story of the people of God, the law code that God has given them, it's fairly complicated. We're talking over 600 laws that they are to be following, and a lot of storyline. And, and, and I'm sure that there was a whole mix of the ways in which people understood the law and the storyline. Some knew it really, really, really well. I mean, Moses would have been the, the expert. He heard it from God's mouth. He wrote it down. He's been preaching it and teaching it for 40 years. He's even given this magnum opus sermon of Deuteronomy to uh, summarize the law itself. But then on the other far end of the spectrum might be a guy like Achan. And you, you can read about Achan in the book of Joshua. Achan uh, decides he's not going to follow the, the, the code regarding uh, what to do when they go in to take Jericho. And he breaks the code and it results in consequences for him and his family and the people of Israel. And so you've got this whole spectrum and everybody in between. Some know more than others and so how do you get that many people on the same page? And I think it's hard for us to even get in our minds like what you would do with, you know, three or four million people that are experiencing something together. And it made me think about, well, are there any kind of religious experiences, religious uh, gatherings that are current that would even compare to this? And I started Googling around and I came up with 1995 Youth uh, World Day. World Youth Day in Manila, uh, the Philippines. They estimate about four to five million people gathered 
most of the young people. And uh, they literally had to helicopter the Pope in. It was a Roman Catholic event, and they helicoptered him in so that he could stand in the middle of those four or five million people and give an, an address to uh, the youth that were attending uh, that event. And you think about Moses. Moses didn't have, you know, amplification. He didn't have jumbotrons. He, he, he had a lot of <laughs> more obstacles he had to work with. Uh, and so God's giving him some things to help get people on the same page. Um, and so they, they're going to build a monument, and they're going to sacrifice an altar, and they're going to do a cheer. Now, here's what we're going to look at in this sermon. What these things are, what do they mean to Israel, and what, if anything, do they mean to us? And, and I think they do mean something to us. We wouldn't be spending much time uh, with them. So what are these things? What do they mean to Israel, and what do they mean to us? So the first one, build a monument. So it's described here, Deuteronomy 27, You shall set up large stones and plaster them with plaster, and you shall write on them all the words of this law. So they're supposed to create a monument. Right? Plaster these stones, write the law. Uh, I think it's probably right to take commandments. I don't know for sure if they're writing like the entire book of Deuteronomy or... That seems like it would be really, really hard and massive, uh, but I, you know, it could be that. But whatever it is, it's a, it's a reminder, right? It's a sign of the covenant. They had a sign of the covenant, which was the Ten Commandments, uh, but that, those Ten Commandments were being kept inside the Ark of the Covenant, the golden box that kind of represented the presence of God, and it was in the interior part of the tabernacle where they worshiped. So no one could see it. They couldn't see the Ten Commandments. So it really wasn't a visible sign for anyone. So they kind of create this larger version of the Ten Commandments, probably, as a sign of the covenant. Uh, we understand monuments. I, I think we, we have a lot of monuments in our world. Uh, certainly in, in the United States, we have a lot of monuments. Uh, you probably recognize this first one here. You, you recognize that one? Yeah, it's Statue of Liberty. And it, it, it's a monument that re- reminds us of all the ha- people who, millions of people have immigrated into this country and create the melting pot that the United States of America is. There's about 12 million people that were processed through Ellis Island who came into the U.S. And, and she's a reminder of that. Or this one. Right? The, the, art, the, the huge arches in St. Louis. Anybody been in that arch? You can, you can go up to the top. It's like this little egg car and you get in there. If, you, if you're claustrophobic, probably shouldn't do it, but it kind of clicks its way up there and you can stand on the top, uh, inside, not on top, but inside at the top part of the arch and you can look out these little windows and you can see St. Louis. pretty awesome. But it's a reminder of, of Western expansion, right? A, of sort of the innovative, adventurous spirit of those who went out west and, and created a new life uh, for themselves. Uh, or, or this one, you know what this one is? Tomb of the Unknown Soldier in Washington, D.C. Now, Washington, D.C. is just the city of monuments. I mean, it's, it's everywhere you go, there's some kind of a monument. But, but this one is, has the remains of an unknown soldier, but it, it's also to remember all the other soldiers that either we ha- were not able to identify or... Uh, soldiers that have been lost in, in battle and we never were able to retrieve 
uh, their remains, but, but really a, a memorial to the men and women who have served our country and given their lives uh, for the freedoms that we have. Right? And so the reason we have monuments, we want, we want to remember whatever the event or the idea that's attached to that monument. We don't want to forget it when we create a, a, a monument. Here, here's a, another one that's actually in Amherst. Anybody know what that one is? No, of course not. Um, unless you go to Amherst College, you've probably never seen that one. That's Henry Ward Beecher. Henry Ward Beecher was a graduate in the 1800s from Amherst College. He became a world-famous evangelist, preached the gospel uh, all over the world. He's also an abolitionist and preached Jesus to people and really uh, was rooted in his faith in large part his experience at Amherst College. So every time I walk up on the, on the campus there on the way to Frost Library and I look at Henry Ward Beecher and I remember there's a legacy there at that campus uh, of people being raised up to know Christ and being sent out to the nations with the gospel. Now the administration is not aware of this legacy and not, not, not aware that this is continuing to happen, but still to this day God is doing that at Amherst College. And so it reminds me of the legacy that's gone before and what God's doing as we move forward in faith in Christ. It's, it's a monument. So the monument, it's a, it's a sign. It's a visible sign uh, of the covenant that God has with His people. Uh, so that not only were they to build this monument, but they were to worship at an altar. That's the second thing. Um, now, typically they would worship in the tabernacle. And the altar would be inside the tabernacle, and only the priest could go in there and, and see that. Uh, but at this point, there's, there's no place that's been designated yet for the tabernacle. It will be designated. Uh, Shiloh will be the place where it's designated. Then they'll move to Jerusalem at some point. Um, but at this point, there's no place. The tabernacle's being carried around. It's portable. Uh, and, and Moses says, okay, this time when you go in, I want you to build a public altar that everyone can see, not just the priests, but everyone can see this. And I want you to build it out of stones that have not been touched by any kind of a human tool. And I think in part what he's, what he's saying there is, I, I want this altar to be about what I have done for you, not what you have done for me. I don't need you to make some amazing, you know, bring all your best artisans in and make some amazing you know, altar that's some sort of a tribute to me, I want you to understand this sacrifice is something I do for you because what they do on this altar is they sacrifice peace offerings. And what they're doing is they're saying, we are sinners just like the Canaanites. We are worthy of the same judgment that those Canaanites are worthy of and we need to be forgiven. And the only way we're going to be forgiven is if this animal takes the punishment that we deserve. And so they sacrifice these animals on this altar as a way to be reminded of that and to be reminded of the substance of the covenant. That the substance of the covenant is grace. Even for the Old Testament people of God, sometimes people are like, well, the Old Testament is like law and rules and obey, and if you don't, God's going to get you. And then the New Testament's all grace. Actually, both Old and New are about grace. The Old Testament people of God got into the covenant that they're in with God by grace. Partly how that's communicated is every time God's 
calling them to obey uh, the law, He reminds them, remember that I took you out of Egypt. And that was all grace. They didn't do anything. They didn't follow any laws because they, they didn't even know the law at that point. God completely by grace carried them out of Egypt and rescued them. And, and then because of grace, they respond, yes, with obedience to the law. And so He, he even says to them in, in Deuteronomy 27, 7, you shall sacrifice peace offerings and shall eat there and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God. And they, they've done nothing at this point. They've, they've come across the Jordan. And God will, you know, if you know the story, He will arrange for them to cross the Jordan. They've obeyed no law. They've taken no city. They've, they've done nothing that's in obedience. It's a reminder to them, this is by grace. And that because of grace, you can experience the shalom of God. Now, that, that's the Hebrew word for peace. And it's a word that indicates peace with God. Right? That the separation that sin has caused in our relationship with God has, has now been breached. And now we, we can be in relationship with God. But not only that, that, that we have peace with one another. That we have peace within our own selves. We have peace even with the, the earth. And so they, first thing, build a monument and then build this altar and rejoice before the face of God because of His grace. That's the substance of the covenant. Now, the third part is do a cheer. Do a cheer. Kind of a strange cheer. Uh, don't usually cheer about curses, but uh, this, is, this, is a, this is a curse cheer. And this is my favorite part of this passage because partly because it's just so intriguing, right? So again, we're talking about 3 million, maybe 4 million folks, and, and so half of those folks are climbing up on Mount Ebal, and Mount Ebal is going to represent the curses. And I'm sure the people are, that, that are on Mount Ebal are like, why do we have to represent the curses? I want to be on the blessing mountain, right? But they go up, and they're up on, on Mount Ebal. Then Mount Gerizim is the mountain of blessing. And so the other half, so, so we're talking, you know, 1.5 million maybe on each mountain, and then the Levites, the, the priestly class, they're, they're probably down in the valley in between, right? And, and they're, they're, they're leading the cheer. And what, what is being communicated here is the stakes of a covenant of God, right? We, we, we had uh, the sign, the substance, and now we have the stakes. And the stakes are blessings or curses. It's like, take your pick. Blessings, curses. What's it going to be? It's going to be Mount Ebal. It's going to be Mount Gerizim. And the blessings are things like, and if, if you looked at chapter 28, it um, goes through the blessings and it goes through the curses. And uh, the blessings are things like, blessed shall be your womb, the fruit of your ground, the fruit of your cattle. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. So there the blessings, it's prosperity, material prosperity, that you're going to have lots of kids. Uh, which in an agrarian society, lots of kids means more pros prosperity because they can work the farm. And nowadays, more kids means less prosperity because you got to send them to college. <laughs> but, but this was something that was desired greatly in the ancient world, more and more children, right? And, and st still to this day, children are a blessing from the Lord. We know, we know that from Scripture. Um, 
But not only that, uh, they're told that the Lord will cause their enemies who rise against them to be defeated, that they'll come out against you one way and they'll flee before you seven ways. So it's a way for them to be told, you're going to have national security. You're going to have prosperity, you're going to have peace. I mean, this is what politicians run on, right? This is what, this is what they are still saying. Vote for me, and I will give you prosperity, and I will give you peace. Why do they say that? Because we all want that. We all desire that. We want prosperity. We want to have safety within uh, having food and having a roof over our head and, and having the things that we need day to day. But, but also we, we want this, this safety. Right? We want to have peace. But why, why these blessings? Why this prosperity? Why this peace? Is this just so they can have a great life? No. Uh, Deuteronomy 28, verse 9, The Lord will establish you as a people holy to Himself. As He sworn to you, if you keep the commandments of the Lord your God and walk in His ways, and all the peoples of, of the earth shall see that you are called by the name of the Lord, and they shall be afraid of you. So He's saying, I, I want to establish you as a people holy to myself. I want you to be a God-centered, worshiping people that allows that worship to, to spill out into the everyday life such that you're obeying the commands that have to do with all the intricacies of, of, of everyday life. But not only that, I want that to be a testimony to the nations. The nations are going to be looking in at you and they're going to see the people of the one true God. I talked about this a few weeks. This is sort of up and in and out. It's the same thing that the people of God in the New Testament are being called to, right? This God-centered, worshiping people we talk about that are connected with one another, right? In community, but not only that, they're on a mission to impact the people around them, but also people in, around the world. And this, is, this has always been God's vision for the people that He's calling to Himself. And, and this is an amazing vision. Who would not want this? This is an invite back to Eden. It's what we read in the first two chapters of Genesis before sin enters into the, the universe and, and all the effects that come from that is this right relationship with God and self and others. It's, it's the shalom of God that we're built for, we're designed for. God's inviting them back into that shalom. But if they don't respond to that invitation, they stay separated from the life-giving God, they will experience curses, not blessings. You see this formula in chapter 27 that was just read, cursed be the man who, and then fill in the blank. And then all the people shall say, Amen. Amen just means so be it. I agree. This is the cheer part. And so the Levites are calling up to the mountain, the two mountains. They're saying, cursed is the person that blank. And then everybody says, Amen. I agree. And there are things like, cursed is the, the one who worships an idol. Right? Starts with, with the up. Uh, cursed is the one who dishonors parents. I'm starting to move out, but, but kind of close to home, right? Uh, 
Cursed is the one who lacks integrity in their business dealings. That's what it means when it says they're moving the marker in the land that's showing who has what land, and they're moving it around with shows a tremendous lack of integrity, trying to have more land than they actually do. Cursed is the one who perverts justice due to blind people and widows and orphans and sojourners. So now it's moving out even, even further, not just your neighboring um, landowners, but now I'm moving out to those that are vulnerable. Cursed is the one who participates in sexual perversion, right? Cursed is anyone who murders someone. And these are only examples from the law. They're not an exhaustive list. As I said before, there's 613 laws. And the, the, the final part of the cheer, Deuteronomy 27, 26, says, Cursed be anyone who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them. And all the people shall say, Amen. So what are these curses? Well, the rest of, a uh, good part of Deuteronomy 28 uh, talks about these curses. It starts off just saying the opposite of what the blessings were. So instead of having a fruitful womb where you're having lots of kids, uh, you're, you're not having a fruitful womb. You're not having children. Instead of having fruitful ground and fruitful livestock, your, your ground's not growing crops and your livestock are not multiplying. So there's scarcity of food. But not only that, there's lack of security. So now that the enemies that were once coming at you and then leaving disunified are coming at you unified and you yourself are leaving disunified because of the attack. And then Moses just starts adding on top of that. He, he says, you're going to experience fiery heat and drought and pestilence and mildew and wasting disease and fever and inflammation and boils and tumors, confusion, frustration, madness, blindness. You're going to be attacked. You're going to be robbed of your livestock and your vineyards. Your wives are going to be raped. Your children are going to be forced in slave labor. Ultimately, you're going to be taken over by another country. And then he goes on another 25 verses <laughs> describing in an even greater detail the intricacies of this curse that would be placed on them if they don't follow the commands of God, to the point of even describing a siege scenario where they're locked up in their city and they're surrounded, they can't get out, they're running out of food, and they're eating their own children. That's part of Deuteronomy 28. He finishes the curse section here, Deuteronomy 28, 64. He says, And the Lord will scatter you among all peoples, from one end of the earth to the other. And there you shall serve other gods of wood and stone, which neither you nor your fathers have known. Among these nations you shall find no respite. There shall be no resting place for the sole of your foot, but the Lord will give you there a trembling heart, a failing and failing eyes, a languishing soul. Your life shall hang in doubt before you. Night and day you shall be in dread and have no assurance of your life. In the morning you shall say, if only it were evening. And at evening you shall say, if only it were morning. Because of the dread that your heart shall feel and the sights that your eyes shall see. And the Lord will bring you back in ships to Egypt. A journey I promise that you should never make again. There you shall offer yourselves for sale to your enemies as male and female slaves, but there will be no buyer. This is the absolute opposite of the shalom of God that was promised in the blessings. It describes false worship. It describes disunity and breakdown of relationships within 
Israel. It, it, it's describing uh, enslavement. Here they've been rescued from Egypt, and he's saying, I'm going to send you back to Egypt, and then when you get back to Egypt, you're going to try to sell yourself into slavery because you have no other options, and they're not going to want to buy you. It's abject hopelessness that's being described there. Now, we think, God, such a meanie, right? But what he's describing are the natural consequences of being separated from the life that only God can give. He's inviting them into the presence of, of God, into this covenant relationship. He said, if, you, if you're not inside that covenant relationship and, and you choose to get, go outside of that, you're going to experience the full consequences of separation from God. And Moses is not just describing, I would say not just here in this life. Like he, He's describing, beginning to kind of go into an eternal kind of vision of what it's like to be separated from the life-giving God. Again, these consequences have been unfolding way before Israel was standing in the desert listening to Moses preach Deuteronomy. We hear about the curse that God speaks of in Genesis 3 after Adam and Eve had sinned. It says, Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you were dust, and to dust you shall return. That curse has has been playing itself out generation after generation after generation, and God is inviting them out of that cursed existence into a shalom with Him. And He's saying, if you don't come into this covenant, into this shalom with me, you will experience the curse. We, We see the curse in our own world today. I mean, it doesn't, you just turn on some news, read some articles online, and, and, and it's not hard to find places that are, are, are war-torn, and the result being displacement of people, folks having to move out of their, their own home country and end up in a, in a refugee camp where there's disease and deprivation, and out of the desperation of that, people turning toward criminal activity to try to survive, resulting in those that are vulnerable being exploited and a complete lack of security in those people's lives. And then that just results in in more conflict and the cycle just continues. The curse is alive and well in 2017. We don't have to look that far. We can look into our own hearts our own lives. I mean, some of us, we, we hear this verse 67 of, of Deuteronomy 28, and we resonate with this, where it says, In the morning you shall say, If only it were evening. And in the evening we shall say, If only it were morning. Right? Some, some of you are, you are experiencing that. Partly why you came today. You're like, I don't know what else to do. I think I'll go to church. Maybe there's some answer, some hope. I don't know, but at night, I can't sleep. But when I wake up in the morning, I can't wait for night because I just want to go to bed. It's the curse. It's, it's the effects that have come from, from sin. And it hangs on us. And it hangs on us with a great weight. And, and the question is, like, what, what, what do I do? To get this off of me, to have freedom from 
the curse. And, and, and I think if we just have sort of a surface reading of this, we think, I've got to obey all God's commands and then I'll be free from the curse. I was at a, a marriage retreat this weekend. We had like 12 couples from our church that were part of it. And, and it was an awesome experience and awesome, great teaching and just a good time to just be together. Uh, and I, I really enjoyed it. My wife and I were both built up and encouraged by it. But last year, I did not like it. Now, when a pastor goes to a conference or hears some teaching, we're, we're a tough customer, okay? So, you know, keep that in mind. But... What it felt like last year was a list of, here's what you do to fix your marriage. And it was like, there was probably 50 things that were thrown at us. Do this, and don't do this, and do this, and don't do this, and do this, and don't do this. And I'm listening to that, and, I, and I'm thinking, okay, either people are going to walk out of here feeling pretty puffed up because they're like, okay, I'm going to do the list. Or they're going to feel totally condemned because they're like, I can't do that. <laughs> Either one of those is deadly. And I think when we read this, we, we start to think, okay, do the list, do the list, do the list. But, but really what, what, what comes out of this is, is a desire and a need and a hunger to be released from the curse. We need a cure from the curse. We can't follow the commands because of the curse. <laughs> we need a cure. For the curse. And the cure is tucked into Deuteronomy. It's a very unlikely cure. Deuteronomy 21 speaks of this. 21.22 says, If a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body should not remain all night on the tree. But you shall bury him the same day, for a hanged man is cursed by God. That's a strange verse. Right? You read that, you're having your quiet time in the morning, you know, you're drinking your cup of coffee, and like, Lord, I'm not sure what to do with that. You know, like, what, what, what does that mean? Like, someone who's been executed for a crime, and they're hanging on a tree, and that's a curse. Like, what does that even, what does that even mean? But then, it's interesting, the New Testament writers, they pick that up and they talk about it. And here's, here's a couple of examples. Acts 5, verse 30. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging Him on a tree. God exalted Him at His right hand as leader and Savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sin. There in Acts, lets us know that Jesus is cursed and he uses that idea of being hung on a tree. Maybe you were wondering, like maybe you've heard in songs or heard someone talk about the, the tree. Like you're thinking, why do you say that? Like why don't you just say the cross? Why do you say the tree? The reason you say the tree at times is because of the scripture in Deuteronomy. And so that New Testament writer is showing that Jesus is experiencing the curse when he's being hung on the cross. And they say, well, what? Why? I mean, he's an innocent man. He's, he, he, he doesn't deserve that. Like, like why, would, why would anybody, if, if anybody's going to experience the curse, it shouldn't be Jesus, right? And then the Apostle Paul in Galatians 3 gives us a little bit more insight into this idea. It says, Christ redeemed us 
from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. It is written, cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. So what it tells us is that there is a cure for the curse, and it's not following every command 100%. The cure for the curse is the cross. The cure for the curse is putting our faith in what Christ did when He hung on the tree. And He took our curse that we deserved so that we could be cured. That's the good news of the gospel. Amen? That is good news. And so if, if, you've, if you've felt the weight of that curse, right, and, and, and you've thought, I just need to try harder. Maybe, maybe you've come into the church this morning, you're like, I wonder, maybe the pastor will give me a couple of things I could do this week. Like, I could kind of check off a list, and I could start turning a corner. No, what that's like is, is, is like, trying to cure the, the stench of death in a corpse with some deodorant, right? That's not going to work. It stinks. Death stinks. That's what the curse is. It's, it's death. It's the effects of sin. And no amount of rule following is going to deal with that stench. The only thing that's going to deal with that stench is, is to be completely made alive by Jesus. That'll deal with the stench. And it happens when we put our faith in what Christ has done on the cross for us. And then, yes, we obey His commands, but not because we're afraid that we're cursed, right? It's, it's because we have been blessed by grace. And that motivates us to obey the commands, and it gives us grace to obey the commands. The commands that we were once trying to obey in our own strength, now we're doing it in the power of the Holy Spirit. We're doing it because we've been blessed in the gospel. My wife and I have a couple, married couple in our life, that is an absolute reminder of Jesus' ability to break the curse. Uh, the husband, actually, we, we were with him when he became a Christian. He, he came with us to a youth event, heard a, a, a speaker talk about the gospel. He responded in faith, and I mean, he never looked back. He was a Christ follower from then on. He was about 17 years old. Little did we know that there was a lot of backstory to his experiences as a kid. And what, part of that backstory is that when he was a, a younger kid, he... Uh, was molested by his stepbrother uh, who would come to, to the house on the weekends and visit his stepdad. No one knew it was happening, but over a, a pretty long amount of time, he experienced this molestation. He'd never talked to anybody about it. He felt a tremendous amount of shame. Tried to push it down. Tried, tried to, okay, I'm following Jesus now, and it's going to be okay. And, and eventually, when he got in college, he finally said it out loud to someone who's a trusted friend. And it kind of got worse before it got better because then he, he was staring that in the, to, in the face and he was just depressed and struggling, but, but he took a semester off and he worked through it and he went to counseling and just really experienced a transformation of his life in that time in college. 
he eventually marries Rachel. And uh, she's got a story too. <laughs> Rachel had grown up in the, um, in the church. She, she had some understanding of the gospel, but never had really given her life to Christ. She'd never become a follower of Jesus. And she went to college, and she just kind of went crazy. She, she was partying. She was sleeping around. She, she was just like, I'm just going to completely just sort of throw off my, my parents' faith, and I, I'm just going to live the way I want to live. She was running track, and she was having you know, a good time being a college athlete. And then she got pregnant. And so without anybody knowing it, she decides she's going to get an abortion. So she goes to the abortion clinic, and she gets an abortion, and she comes home, and she's just undone. She's just distraught. And she's feeling shame, and she's, she's feeling fear, and she's, she's just by herself, and no one knows what's going on. And she's just crying out to, 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 to no one at that point. And she decides, I'm just going to binge on alcohol and drugs. And so she just parties for a couple of weeks straight, just trying to medicate the pain that she's experiencing. She's still not feeling quite right and not knowing what's going on medically with her. She goes back to the doctor. Turns out she had a second baby inside of her. They had aborted one of two babies that were in her womb. At this point, the second baby has, has been adversely affected by the drugs and alcohol. They abort that second baby. She goes home even more distraught than she was before. At this point, she doesn't go to the drugs and alcohol. She turns to God in prayer and cries out to Him for help. And in her words, she says, and He came down. <laughs> he came down and He said, I love you. And just affirmed his love for her, his forgiveness of her, his desire to be in relationship with her, to give her new life. And her life was transformed. And the weight of that curse that she was experiencing, just like in the life of her husband, was lifted. They eventually meet, they marry, and they are an amazing testimony to the grace of God. They love Jesus. They've got three kids they're doing an awesome job of being parents. The husband is as an elder in their church. They are welcoming teenagers into their home for Wednesday nights and teaching them about Jesus. I mean, it, it, it's an amazing testimony. And it is because of the grace of God. And so you may, may be coming in here this morning and you, you feel the weight of that curse. You, you, you know what I'm talking about. And in, in the morning when you wake up, you can't wait for it to, to be dark again so you can go back to bed because you don't want to deal with your day. And then when nighttime comes, you can't sleep anyway. And I'm saying Jesus can lift that curse, but not just the curse in this life, <laughs> the curse in the life to come because this is not just a temporal thing. This is something that, that is cosmic. It's spiritual. And so... If you're thinking, my life's pretty good. I don't, I don't really need any, any help. I mean, maybe a little help, but not a lot. I'm doing pretty good. I don't really have all those problems he's talking about. Understand that that curse carries over into the life to come unless you receive the cure. You hear Jesus talking about this in, at different times. He, in Matthew 10, 
He uses Old Testament judgment to talk about eternal judgment. He does this multiple times. But he says this in Matthew 10, and he's talking about rejecting Christ. He says, if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly, I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. He compares those that are rejecting Jesus to those in Sodom and Gomorrah, and he says, an even worse judgment. Now, what he's talking about is eternal judgment. And so, again, if you're thinking, I'm good, I don't really need Jesus like that pastor's talking about, you're wrong. You need him. And you need him both in this life and in the life to come. But the reason he took the curse on the cross is so you wouldn't have to bear it. And so my encouragement to you this morning is to receive that grace. We, we were reminded of it every time we come to this, this table. This is our sign of the covenant. It's an interesting sign. It's, it's not a, a big monument somewhere, right? They didn't build a, a big monument in, in Jerusalem like on the, you know, the place where the cross of Christ was. They didn't, they didn't do that. But Jesus gives us a, a sign, and it's pretty portable, right? And it can, it can pop up anywhere. It can pop up in Amherst, Mass. It can, it can pop up in Australia. It can, it can pop up in Latin America, anywhere. And, and, but it is a sign. It reminds us of the covenant. It also reminds us of the substance of the covenant. And the substance of the covenant is grace. And that grace was bought and paid for by the death of Christ on the tree. Right? It's also a reminder of the stakes, Right? This, this is the only mountain you want to be on, right? This is the mountain of blessing. There is no other mountain of blessing. Everywhere else is drowning. The mountain of redemption. This is the only place where we can escape the curse and be in the shalom of God in this life and the life to come. And so this is a reminder it's a sign, a reminder of the substance, a reminder of the stakes. So if you come here this morning and you're under the curse, there's good news that you can be released from that by placing your faith in Christ who, who took that curse on the tree. If you're a follower of Christ, you, you, you've already received that. It's a reminder of what you were saved from. I mean, you, you should, if you haven't read Deuteronomy 28, you ought to go home and read that. And then thank God that you, you're being saved from the curse. It's, it's horrendous. But also what you're being saved to. That now by grace, you, you can follow His commands. But again, not because you're afraid you're going to get cursed, but because you've been blessed by grace. And now you can follow Him for His glory and for the good of those around you. Amen? Yeah. So as we take this, again, it's a reminder, it's a sign of what Christ has done for us, the free gift of grace that He's given us, that we receive by faith. And if you haven't done that this morning, again, I'm encouraging you to do that, to, to reach out to, to God in prayer and receive that forgiveness and that new life and that rescue from the curse. 
if you're here today and you're, you're just getting started on this journey, you're, you're saying, I'm not a Christian, this is new to me, I've got 150 questions that I want to ask somebody, I'm going to encourage you during this time that we take communion to just remain in your seat and to pray and to think about what you're hearing and then to seek someone out after the service and talk more. I'd love to have that conversation. I'll be down front after the service. I'd be happy to talk more. But uh, during this time, just remain in your seat. And those who have experienced the lifting of that curse by grace through faith, you're welcome to the table. This, this, is, this is our meal before the face of God. We're experiencing a time of rejoicing because we get to live in the shalom of God, both in this life and the life to come. And so you're welcome to come and, and to celebrate that and to rejoice because of what He's done for you. Let's pray. Were you there when they nailed Him to the tree? Were you there when they nailed him to the tree? Oh, 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 sometimes it causes me to tremble, tremble. Tremble, were you there when they nailed him to the tree? Lord, we were there. All of our sin and guilt and shame, sin we had committed. Sins even committed against us, Lord. All of that there on that tree. God, we give you thanks for taking that curse on yourself and giving us blessing. Thank you that as we take this bread and we take this cup, Lord, we are in your shalom. We are made right with you by grace. We are made right with one another by grace. We are made right even with our own selves by grace. And we long for the ultimate shalom, Lord, when you return. And in this season of Advent, Lord, we, we confess our sins and repent from them and we long for your coming to fully restore this world in your shalom. God, bless the bread, bless the cup. Draw us into communion with you, God. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.